somebody sitting on the front row. And, uh, <laughs> but, but this idea that evangelists, we just sort of blag our way through everything, you know. We fly by the seat of our back. Where do we... Oh, well, perhaps that... Anyway, but you get the idea, you know. We have bad press. The caricature of evangelists is not very good. Now, I deliberately read these two passages because I think they're significant. And let me explain what the significance is by way of illustration. My eldest daughter is Emma. Emma and I were in Maastricht in Holland some years ago, and it was a Saturday afternoon. We'd cycled from somewhere. We went into Maastricht, and we sat down to have a coffee. And in mainland Europe, as most of us know, very often in the summer at least, you'd sit outside at the table and there you'd have your coffee. And we were, we were having coffee and chatting away and all the rest. And, and next to us, and not very far, probably only a couple of feet away, was another table and around it was a black family and they were chatting and, and all the rest. That's fine. We were there for a little while when a couple who just got married walked by us. Now, I say they just got married because in Holland, after you're married, and you get married by a civil marriage service, first of all, and then if you want, you can have a church service. After you've got, had gone through the, the marriage service in the civil ceremony, you, you then walk around the streets together, and people stand and clap you, you see. And um, uh, this couple, he was dressed really smartly. He was tall, he was slick, he, he really looked good. And she... She was pretty gorgeous too. Lovely, white dress, etc. But interestingly, there was another significant difference. Not only was he a man and she a woman, she was white and he was black. And I saw this couple going by, you see, this gorgeous white bride and this, this um, very gentlemanly, tall, handsome, etc. black bridegroom. And I just said to Emma, I, I didn't mean it particularly loudly, I thought I was just whispering, but I just said, lucky man. The family around the table next to me, who were black, they turned and said, lucky woman. <laughs> they saw it completely the other way around. I saw the, the, the man having his lovely bride. They, but it was the woman who said he saw the bride having a, you get the idea. Now, actually, we were both correct. But we were just seeing things from a totally different point of view. Now, in these two passages, in 2 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul is looking at his work, his, his life as an evangelist, but he's not just looking at it as I was looking at the bride from one point of view, he was looking as it were at the couple from two points of view. He was looking at his life from two different points of view. Now you remember when the Apostle Paul was converted, the Lord Jesus Christ had shown Paul how many things he would suffer for Christ's name's sake. We get that in Acts 11, verse 16. Uh, and now, actually, we're getting confirmation of this in the Lord's own words. But, but Paul is speaking, and he's speaking with the language of experience. Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians, had already spoken about some of his troubles and hardships and distresses. And he compared himself, he contrasted himself, if you want, with the people who claimed to be ministers, but they never suffered. Everything was rosy for them. And he said, no, 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 that's not life for me. I've been through some tough times. Actually, what he's saying is, the weakness of my life, that is the credential for Christian service. In other words, the Christian always knows a sense of crucifixion and a sense of resurrection. The Christian is always aware that the Lord Jesus Christ, who he or she is following, suffered 
and died, but also rose from the dead. The Christian recognises that there is a price to be paid, but there are also blessings to be received. James Denny, Scottish theologian of a century or so ago, said, God will always have his work done by instruments who are willing to have it clear that the exceeding greatness of the power is his and not theirs. Now, in 2 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians 6, there are 13 contrasts. And what I've tried to do is group them together into four sections of, of hardship. Now, I I say again, I think this is incredibly relevant for us. This is not just something of 2,000 years ago. This is you and me today. If we're going to do evangelistic work, we're going to find the same as Paul. Let's look at them. First of all, there is physical hardship. The way the Apostle Paul puts it, he says, My body has been persecuted, but it's not destroyed. It's not deserted. Let's look at it, chapter 4, verse 9. If you turn back, he said, I am persecuted, but not forsaken. Again, in chapter 4, verse 9, I am struck down, but not destroyed. Um, Moffat, who did a Bible translation about 60 years ago, he, he translated this as knocked down, knocked down, but not knocked out. Okay? And then look at chapter 6, as dying, verse 9, and behold, we live. And again, chapter 6, as chastened, and yet not killed. Alright, so from the 13 contrasts, four of them are to do with physical suffering. The Apostle Paul knew what it was to suffer bodily, physically, blow after blow. And yet none of the blows which he received were fatal, until eventually probably martyred in Nero's gardens. The, The weight of the suffering did not extinguish from him the joy of the new life which he was experiencing in Jesus Christ, nor did he extinguish from him the privilege, the special privilege of Christian ministry. Yes, he was going through so much physically, but it didn't destroy him. He still carried on. Now, in evangelistic work, and and I would say perhaps supremely in evangelistic work, There is never going to be a sense that I have finished the job. You know, John Wesley said, the world is my parish. And we are commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So let me labour all day as an evangelist, telling people the gospel, but I can never go to bed, lay down and think, right, I've done my job. I I can't because there are six billion others who've yet to hear, right? You know, will I ever be able to retire and say, right, that's it? No, because there's a world to be evangelised. And there is a sense in which at times we will be physically exhausted. Now, the Lord Jesus was. He fell asleep, you remember, at the back of a boat when it was thrown to and fro on the, the, the Sea of Galilee. He knew what it was to be absolutely weary. And, and Paul is saying this, dying, he says, but behold, we live. There were times when he was hungry, he was thirsty, he felt in peril of his own countrymen, the thieves, the robbers. He wandered around destitute, etc. He knew what it was to be, at his very weakest, absolutely exhausted. I was mentioning to a group of people earlier, um, only once have I ever been thumped by a woman. 
And that was actually in the open air in Leeds. We used to go down late on a Saturday night to a place called the Corn Exchange, and there we had open air meetings. In those days, we used to have a soapbox, and you used to have a group of men around the soapbox to protect you. But on one occasion, a woman got through that somehow and bashed me, broke my glasses, and it hurt. I don't know that in any other way I've been absolute, uh, uh, at all persecuted, but there have been times when I've been absolutely exhausted. Sometimes people comment on my car, and I say, well, my car is not only my car, it's my van, because I take so much in it, it's my office, because I spend, spend so many hours working in it, it's my, it's my hotel, it's my bedroom, I don't know how many nights I... And every year I sleep in my car, but it's always several, and, and you, you wake up feeling grubby and sweaty, and I'm not really having properly slept, but you have to keep moving, and, or you're going home, you set off from a place at 11 o'clock, and you're driving, and you, I can keep going to about 10 past 2, then I've just got to stop, have a little snooze, and you drive on, you have another snooze, you drive on and have another snooze, eventually you get home, and you think, I don't remember the last 200 miles of this journey, but you've made it home, you're pleased to say, but the times when you just just totally exhausted. I was preaching in Leicester on one occasion at Bethel Church in Leicester and I'd done a week-long mission there. Uh, I, I preached in the morning. I think we'd done something on Sunday afternoon as well and we went to the evening service. I was in the vestry. The, the, the pastor is a doctor so I felt that he probably would understand but when we'd finished praying in the vestry ready to go through into the church to preach I just turned to him and said oh Phil to be honest I'm just shattered. How would you feel if I sleep for half an hour in the vestry and when it's time for me to preach, just come and wake me and then I'll go and preach. I said, oh, that's all right. But apparently I had a real job to wake me up. Come on, Roger, it's time to preach. <laughs> and you sort of preach in your sleep. There's many, many a prayer at the beginning of an evening service which has been a real blessing to me. Fortunately, I've always woken up at the Amen and uh, I've been on the platform and it's just given me the sufficient re- refreshment to keep on preaching. And it's easy to joke about it now, but sometimes you just feel dead. I've prayed on many a platform, God, give me resurrection strength, will you? Because I am absolutely dead. I can't do this. There is a cost. And Paul is saying this, hey, look, I'm not dead. I'm not deserted. I'm not left alone. It is a privilege to be serving, but... Ooh. Well, Paul was, he was stoned and left as dead. Three times he was shipwrecked. Five times he was beaten with the 39 lashings on a bare back. That's 195 lashings on a bare back. Three times he was beaten with rods. He knew what it was to go through it. And for us, the physical suffering, well, it it can hurt and it can be powerful. And yet, there are two ways of looking at it. If God has given me energy and strength, what better way to use it than for his glory? If God has given me the ability to keep moving and keep speaking, who better to speak about than the Lord Jesus Christ? If God has given me a passion, a heart that beats for lost men and women, then let me give it for that rather than sitting in front of a telly or whatever else you'd want to do. Secondly, in these 13 contrasts, Paul says there's another way we can look both, from both angles. And now he talks about the emotional cost. He talks about the mind at a loss and the spirit cast down. But he says for himself, never despairing. Look at it again, you get it in both sections. Chapter 4, verse 9. He says, have I got this right? Yes, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down 
or perplexed, it says, I think, in the NIV, but not in despair. Oh, sorry, verse 8. We are perplexed, but not in despair. I've got the wrong verse written down, sorry. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Then look at chapter 6, verse 10, and uh, you get the same idea. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There was within the Apostle Paul, and and the reason we talk about the Apostle Paul, it's not that Paul is our great hero, he's not our saviour, but Paul is rather like, um, he's a sort of pattern for Christian discipleship, a pattern for Christian living. He made his mistakes, he had his sins, he did wrong, we know that. And yet, what an example of Christian living. And and, and we look to him as an example, not as our saviour, not as the one who loved us and died for us, but as the one who lived out being a Christian. He role-modelled Christian living. So we look at him and say, okay, let's try and learn from him. Here's this man, perplexed but not in despair, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. It's as if there was an irrepressible fountain within him, a fountain of grace, of enthusiasm, of passion, and it just kept pouring out the desire to go and make Jesus Christ known. Now, in my prayer letters every quarter, I write an article um, about something that I feel passionate about. And this latest one, I've written about sighing and singing. It's it's the same idea. That the Christian has something to sing about, something to rejoice in, something to, as it were, cartwheel down the street about. We've been saved, we've been loved, we're made Christ, we're linked to him, not only for time, but for all eternity. This is wonderful. And we should learn to rejoice and to give thanks and to sing. And yet there is a sighing as well. So Justin talks to a lady who's doing very well and she's got a BMW and she's got a nice salary and she's got a free this, that and the other. And yet Justin's hurting because he wants this woman to be saved and she's not saved. I suppose of all the women I would love to be saved, if I'm going to be honest, I would love my GP to be saved. I see her regularly, too often I'm afraid. She's the most delightful woman. In her early 30s, she's, she's, she's fun, she's intelligent, she's caring. I've never once seen her get rattled or irritated. I, I just can't believe it, but that's how she is. I would love her to be converted. She gets a a book and a box of chocolates every year and it's always a different book maybe the same box of chocolates but it's uh, uh, I've talked to her about the Lord I know she's had Christian friends etc oh I'd love her to be saved and, and, and that heaviness of heart she's not saved or you're asked to take a funeral of somebody and you think well I don't know I can try and hope that maybe something happened at the end but deep down they died godless people Do I love my family, my relatives? Yes. But my older brother's not a Christian. And that hurts. And and there is going to be great joy as a Christian. But we learn from the Lord Jesus about being a man of sorrows. There is a heartache. There is a grieving. If Jesus could stand and look over Jerusalem and say, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you would not, and, and it brings tears to his eyes and to his heart, Shouldn't I be the same? Am I to be above my master? The sense that God, the God of this age, has blinded people's eyes. Or the great disappointment about people who have backslidden. I was thinking just yesterday about a guy that was older than me and yet he seems so keen and, and now he's nowhere. 
He left his wife. He didn't go off with somebody else. He just left his wife and lives a miserable existence by himself and lives for money and growing older. And hmm. They started out so well, but now nowhere. And, and it hurts you. It, re- it really does. And then when there's a lack of integrity in Christians who, who say one thing but do another, who, who should live like this, but they don't live like this. And all these things, sadness, sadness. And then those, and those of us in Britain are well aware of this in recent years, but those who try to weaken the gospel and try to remove the offence of the gospel. All these things weigh heavily on our heart. Paul talked about the care that he had for the, 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 the churches and it was a care that he really sensed. He's really saying, my mind is at a loss, but I am not utterly lost. There are people who are making progress and not despairing. I feel sorrow, and yet I am rejoicing. And and there'll be this emotional cost, this emotional pain, this emotional price we have to pay for serving the Lord. Now, again, I know that some of you have heard me tell this story before, and it's in one of my books, Growing Through Encouragement, but I don't know any better story than this to illustrate this powerful truth. D.L. Moody was the great evangelist of the 19th century who came from the States to the UK, and etc. The man who followed him, whom he trained, he, he was never as great, he was a brilliant man, but he was never the evangelist that D.L. Moody was was a chap called R.A. Torrey. He was a lawyer. He had a sharp sort of mind. Though, as I say, not quite as great. Of course, uh, Dale Moody had Ira Sankey as his song leader and um, uh, R.A. Torrey had a man called Charles Alexander. Now, Charles Alexander was, he came from a very refined, tight Christian home in the UK. Uh, very cultured, very wealthy and all that. Now, he wasn't stupid because he married into the Cadbury family. So, you know, he was quite a shrewd sort of guy. Um, but um, Charles Alexander became R.A. Torrey's song leader. But once they got to know each other a little bit, Torrey said, look, Charles, there is a problem. You've grown in such a tight ship of a family, you've never seen really the wickedness, the, the awfulness of society round about you. You've got to see that if you're going to be successful in the sort of evangelistic work which were engaged. He said, now, in New York, there's something called the Water Street Mission. And there was a gangster by the name of Sam Hadley who was converted through the Water Street Mission. This gangster, Sam Hadley, had lived a really wild, rough life. On one occasion, he was involved in a fight and his leg was badly damaged. He never walked properly again. and He had a peculiar gait. And, uh, but he was a rough diamond, gloriously saved, who became eventually the superintendent of the mission. He said, now, Torrey said to Alexander, you need to go and spend some time with Sam Hadley and let him show you New York as it really is. See what the world is really like. So these two men of God met in New York and Sam Hadley was going to take um, uh, Charles Alexander around what we used to call them the dens of iniquity, all the really bad places of New York. And he went from place to place to place to place till about two o'clock in the morning when eventually Charles Alexander turned to R.A. Torrey and said, I just cannot, turned to Sam Hadley, sorry, and said, I just cannot cope with this anymore. He said, I feel sick, to be honest. So he said, all right, well, we've done what you wanted to be done. And, and they parted down a dark street in New York, just gas lamps. And 
Charles Alexander went in that direction and Sam Hadley went in that direction. But Charles Alexander could hear the peculiar gait of Sam Hadley and, and he heard it not only walking but then stopped. So Charles Alexander turned to look to see what was going on and he thought perhaps he was feeling sick as well because he was leaning against a lamppost and he quickly turned and started to run up to him and he was about to tap him on the shoulder and say, Sam, are you all right? When this is what he heard, and I don't want to be melodramatic or try and exaggerate or make you chuckle, but this is what he heard. He heard Sam Hadley leaning against the lamppost and from the depth of his heart crying, Oh God! Oh God! The sin of this city is breaking my heart, oh God! Now the Apostle Paul talked about the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And I'm sure that's what Sam Hadley was experiencing. The deep hurt, the pain about the lostness of the lost. Richard Dawkins is not an enemy. He's a lost soul. Pitifully lost. But he's a lost soul who desperately needs Christ. When we're proclaiming the gospel to a crowd in the open air or in a church or wherever it is, They are not the enemy. They are as we once were. We want them to become as we are. We're to love them in. We're to be winsome. Our heart is to bleed for them. And if they walk out antagonistic towards us, well, so be it. If they walk out antagonistic towards the gospel, we will feel the pain of the decision that they're making. I have in my study at home one of my favourite painting a copy obviously but it's Rembrandt's picture of Jeremiah weeping over Jerusalem when it was burning I don't know if you've ever seen it but if not go to a library and get a book of Rembrandt's paintings and just look at it and the sense of pity and the distraught facial expression of, of Jeremiah it's this emotional weeping or if I can quote again the Young Life campaign um, had a hymn book, YL Hymns it was, it was called, and it had a hymn in it which I've never seen anywhere before, but the final verse is one that I've prayed many, many, many times. It, it's the most moving, powerful verse. Listen to this. Dear Lord, I ask for the eyes that see deep down to the world's sore need. I ask for a love that holds not back, but pours out itself indeed. I want the passionate power of prayer that yearns for the great crowd's soul. I want to go amongst the fainting sheep and tell them my Lord makes whole. And listen to the chorus. Let me look at the crowd as my Saviour did till my eyes with tears grow dim. Let me look till I pity the wandering sheep and love them for love of him. So when they broadcast the gospel in Poland, it's not just to fill an hour or half an hour on the radio, it's to reach men and women. When they send out the evangelists into the villages of India with the poverty and the tremendous needs, they're they're wanting these people, I don't know what it's like these days, Ebenezer, but these people whose life expectancy was 47, whether it's risen now, I don't know, only 47, they desperately want them to be saved before they meet God in judgment. There is an emotional cost to this. And I I don't want to talk about myself simply to say that can be extremely painful at times. 
the, the real sense of hurt within. Thirdly, Paul has these 13 contrasts, but the next group is what I'm going to call a social cost. Socially, he saw himself as an outcast, but he was never detached. So let's look at it again. Chapter 6, verse 8, he says, by honour and dishonour. And then he says, by evil report and good report. And then he says, as deceivers and yet true. And then in verse 9, as unknown and yet well known. Paul knew what it was to have times of extreme loneliness. And like his master, he was hounded by everybody around him, it seems. He was, he was under terrible pressure. And yet he had an escape from that pressure. I, I, I don't know, when you saw the brochure for this particular few days, you know, you perhaps saw the name Justin Moat. I thought, oh, he's a well-known character. Let's come along for Justin Moat. Now, well, Justin Moat is a well-known character in Christian circles. But as far as the world is concerned, who knows of Justin Moe? I don't mean to belittle you, I'm sorry about that. I the ba- the bailiffs, perhaps, and the tax collector. <laughs> but who knows of Justin Moe, you know? And, 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 and many of you are like that. You're, you're ministering here or there, but outside of that, who knows of you? It's strange. It's tremendously significant, each one of us. Because God has set his hand upon us, he's saved us, he's filled us, he's using us. Tremendously significant. But walk down the streets of Northampton, nobody's heard of any of us. You know, they wouldn't look twice at us. They were known and yet unknown. As deceivers, and yet we're true. We're portrayed by the BBC as deceivers, and yet we know this is the word of God. It's almost as if we're saying something evil. I don't know whether you heard... um, um, I've got the name of the radio programme on Friday at 6.30 on Radio 4, but they were mocking those who were against abortion, and there were abortion debates, as you know, in Parliament last week. Just, you know, as if, as, as if we're trying to do something evil by saving life. As, as evil, and yet we're good, what we're saying, by honour and dishonour. It was, all, it was generally the practice that clergy, I know there are some exceptions and John Stott deserves to be one of those exceptions, but it's generally been the practice that clergy don't receive OBEs or MBEs or CBs, these are awards from the Queen or knighthoods. Generally the clergy don't, and, and the reason historically is there was always a feeling, right, they receive their reward in heaven. And that's absolutely right, you know. Am I living to get an OBE? <laughs> Forget it, Carswell. There's no way. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. and, and, uh, and yet, am I... Is that what it's all about anyway? You know, a Chelsea manager gets a bit of whatever it was, brass or bronze or plastic from Moscow, and he slings it into the crowd. What's the value of a, of a reward from, from human beings? Okay, it's nice to be honoured, and yet we're not looking for the honour of the world, are we? We're looking for the honour of God. That's exactly what he's saying. But here is Paul. Every one of us wants friends. We want to be well viewed. We, we want to be well received. We, we want to feel that people, I don't know, respect us, give us a bit of affection, a bit of praise. And yet here's Paul. would have been exactly the same. All he seemed to receive was hatred and indifference and scorn and But the way he corrected this becoming such a problem to him was by reminding himself, hey look, I'm not living for the world's reward. Socially, yes, I may be an outcast, but I'm not detached. I'm living for God's reward. I'm looking for his favour. I'm looking for his blessing. I'm looking for the smile from God's face. 
There is a price to be paid for Christian work. There's a price to be paid in, in, in marriage and family life. You know, Paul and, and Justin and, 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 and Jem all have small children and what have we gone and done? We've gone and put, put our, their, our conference during a half-term holiday when they could be at home with their kids and no doubt would love to be at home with their kids, but here they are. There's a price to be paid. And those who are single, and sometimes single for the gospel's sake, because you perhaps could have married somebody if you were willing to disobey the Lord and marry a non-Christian, but no, you've kept through and now there's a bit of a cost. Hmm, there is a price to be paid socially. I, I know what it's like to have been in school assemblies and you present the gospel and you can feel the antagonism from the staff and the kids. And you walk out and think, oh, wow, what did I say? They hated that. Or a student um, union refectory. And um, the CU says, look, um, will will you stand up and speak in the refectory? And say, okay, here we go. And you know they do not want to listen to you. It's tough. It really is tough. Robert Murray McShane, and if you've never read a biography of Robert Murray McShane, you really should. What a saintly man. He said, I see a man cannot be a faithful minister until he preaches Christ for Christ's sake alone. Not for self-glory, not to bring honour to himself, but just for Christ's sake. I don't know whether you know this book. If you don't, I, I really recommend it. Christian Leaders of the 18th Century by Bishop J.C. Ryle. And he looks at some of the famous Christians of that period. But at the beginning of the book, what he does is explain, why did God bring revival to Britain in the 18th century? Why did God use this group of men like Whitfield and Wesley and Berwick, etc.? Listen to what what J.C. Ryle writes. The men who wrought deliverance for us 100 years ago, well it's 200 years ago now, were a few individuals, most of them clergymen of the established church, whose hearts God touched about the same time in various parts of the country. They were not wealthy or highly connected. They had neither money to buy adherents nor family influence to command attention and respect. They were not put forward by any church, party, society or institution. They were simply men whom God stirred up and brought out to do his work without previous concert, scheme or plan. They did his work in the old apostolic way by becoming the evangelists of the day. They taught one set of truths, they taught them in the same way, with fire, reality, earnestness, as men convinced of what they taught. They taught them in the same spirit, always loving, compassionate and like Paul, even weeping, but always bold and flinching and not fearing the face of man. And they taught them on the same plan, always acting on the the aggressive, not waiting for sinners to come to them, but going after and seeking sinners. Not sitting idle till sinners offered to repent, but assaulting the high places of ungodliness, like men storming a breach and giving sinners no rest so long as they stuck to their sins. Henry, can't you translating this? Is this... No, okay, right, okay, we'll let you off. And listen to this as well, sorry, just a bit more. They preached everywhere. If the pulpit or a parish church was open to them, they gladly availed themselves of it. If it could not be obtained, they were equally ready to preach in a barn. 
No place came amiss to them, in the field or by the roadside, on the village green or in a marketplace, in lanes or in alleys, in, in cellars or in garrets, on a tub or on a table, on a bench or on horseback. Wherever hearers could be gathered, the spiritual reformation of the last century was ready to speak to them about their souls. They were instant in season and out of season, in doing the fishermen's work and com compass sea and land, in carrying forward their father's business. Now all this was a new thing. No wonder it caused such great effect. And so it's a great book. But, but these were men, they were just passionate. Never mind the persecution. I love the fact that at the end of his life, when John Wesley was really respected and revered, he, he grumbled one day in his, in his journals. He said, do you know, they no longer throw dead cats. And he was really upset about it. Well, I personally think the best sort of cat is dead, but it doesn't matter. It's the fact is, he just, oh, I want persecution. I want to be... Anyway, you've got the idea. Let's move on. Right, and then fourthly. Um, has my time gone already? Has it? Oh, thank you, okay. We'll listen to the man, sorry. <laughs> Materially, the last, the last set of contrasts is materially. Materially... Paul was poor, but he was never destitute. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. Hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. Or chapter 6, verse 10 again. As poor, yet making many rich. Now, I've sometimes thought about this in my own work. Um, you know, perhaps I've taken a week-long mission, and this has happened a number of times to me, and the group of people who've invited me for a week, I've travelled there, I've spent a week there, sometimes paying for my own accommodation, I've worked with them for a week, and then at the end of the week I travel back home, and they come and they give me their expenses. And I have received, on a number of occasions, a box of Quality Street. And they said, we want to give you something. And they've given me a box of quality street. And they all add, oh, sorry, Roger, we know you're diabetic and we, you can't eat them. But we just wanted to give you something. Ah! So now, not only do I travel back with no money in my pocket, but I've got temptation on the back seat all the way back. And usually I succumb and do myself tremendous harm. But anyway, but I, I can focus on that and think, how many times have I been abused financially? And yet... I can focus on another direction and think, how many times has God wonderfully provided for me? From people who owed me nothing. You know, people who have just decided they want to send me. And I've got some amazing stories. I, anyway, let me quickly tell you one and then um, I'll finish. I, I just think this is absolutely inc incredible. My eldest son is called Ben. He's my number two child. And... Um, um, one day, I got a letter from a couple I'd never heard of, never met, living in Longmont, Colorado. I'd never been to Longmont or to Colorado. But this was the story. My mum and dad used to go to a tiny little Methodist church. There only about a dozen people there, but they went all their lives to this church. And they had a minister for a few years, and he was a good man, but at the end of his ministry in this Methodist church, he left and joined the Baptist church. Well, eventually he went down south and worked at a Baptist church in London. And he came across a course that was being put on by Denver Theological Seminary, where you did a Master of Ministry course. It was three years, but twice every year you had to go over to the States for two weeks and do a bit of study in the college, but the rest of it was done back home. Well, 
he's out there and he'd gone to a church in Longmont and um, a couple just saw him alone and went up to him and said, um, said uh, I've not seen you before. And he spoke with an English accent, which the Americans love, of course. And uh, where are you going for dinner? Well, I haven't thought about it. Well, come to, come to our house. So he goes to this couple's house for a meal. Okay? He's never met them before. They've never met him before. As they were talking, they said that they were Armenians. Now, that's not Armenian. It's not a theological persuasion. It's, it's a country. They were from Armenia. Okay? And, and this minister just turned and said, Oh, how strange. In my previous church, there was only a small church, there was a, a lady there who was Armenian. They immediately said, Really? What was her name? Because all the Armenians know each other. And, and he, he just said, Oh, her name was Rhoda Carswell. My mum, you see. Rhoda Carswell. We've been trying to track her down for years, they said. And they chatted, and sure enough, it was the same person. Why are you trying to track her down? This is what they said. Just over 50 years ago, okay, the, lady, the Armenian lady said, when my father was dying, Rhoda Carswell's father was very kind to my father. And now we've made a lot of money. We'd just like to try and Say thank you in a positive... Is there anything you think we could do to say thank you? Well, this minister thought for a moment and he said, well, they have a son, his name's Roger, that's me, okay? And, um, and uh, maybe you'd like to finance him to do this course of study that I'm doing and pay for him to do it. So out of the blue, I get this letter from this couple I've never heard of. Would you like to be financed to do a Master of Ministry course in Longmont, California, etc.? I looked at it and thought, oh, wow, isn't that amazing? But no, I don't want to do it. <laughs> I just thought, you know, I'm doing evangelism now, it's too late. Maybe it's been 20 years earlier, but not now. So I wrote back and said, thanks, but no thanks. Phone call. It was this lady, oh, hello. I said, right. And look, we really, really want to do something to say thank you. Is there anything? And I thought, and I thought, well, my son Ben has always wanted to study at an American Bible college. Why don't I mention it? I said, well, I've got a son who... Right! We'd love to pay for him. And they paid for his flights and two years' study over there. Uh, I don't know whether they paid for all the McDonald's or the KFC and everything, but anyway, we'll leave that. But an act of kindness shown by my grandfather 50-plus years ago, and I never met my grandfather, he died before I was born, resulted in... Isn't this incredible? And then after that... For something like seven years, they paid for me to have a secretary as well. Then they pulled a plug, but we'll leave that. But it's uh, but incredible. You see, I can focus on the quality street. Huh, is that what they give you, you know? But I can say, hey, what about this couple? You know, I've never, never met them, just being incredibly kind. And many others, and you know, that's a lot of money, but there are people who give the widow's might and all the rest. Materially, okay. I'd be earning more if I was a school teacher. But am I destitute? Not at all. You can see I'm not. Uh, you know, materially, could I, have, could I have done something else? And Yeah, I'd love to start a business. And Hang on a minute. What happens to a business eventually? It just gets burned up. But what we're involved in, if we're involved in evangelistic work, um, counts for eternity. Some people may look at us and they say, huh, slick. All right, that's what they think. Theologically shallow. Okay, it probably means we disagree with each other, but um, if that's how they want to see it. Uh, and sartorially challenged, well, I'm doing the best, honestly. This is, you know, this was a, on the, the very best shelves of Oxfam, so you can't blame him. Oh, you know, and God is well able to take just ordinary people 
who have an attitude that says, God, whether it goes well or appears to go badly, whatever the cost, it's nothing compared with what the Lord Jesus Christ gave for me. And hmm. If he loved me enough to die for me, then no price I can ever pay can outstrip his giving to me, can it? And as was it Justin said it this morning, we don't do it for the sake of it. We do it for the sake of him. Let Roger Carswell, let each of us decrease as long as he increases. And when we go on a pity party, let's remember the Maastricht illustration and think, okay, oh, wow, isn't he lucky? Uh-uh. Isn't she lucky? There are two ways of looking at things. We need to see it all from an eternal perspective. Amen. Shall we pray? Father, forgive us when we think too much about self and we have that hyphenated view of ourselves that we thought earlier about. Forgive us, Lord, when it's all about me because it's not. Let our names, let our reputations perish as long as Jesus is made much of, as long as Jesus is esteemed, as long as people are brought to him. Use us in the great task of making Christ known, we pray, because of him. Amen.